Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week podcast. Our vision is to empower each person to know God, experience freedom, and discover their purpose to make a difference. Enjoy the message from this past Sunday. Well, good morning. Wow, so good to see everybody on this Valentine's Day. Love it. So praise God for that. Happy Valentine's Day. And that's really going to be part of the theme of the message that I'm going to be bringing. I'm super excited to bring this. I taught this back in 2013 and uh, have changed it up a little bit. So I'm excited to bring it to you again today. We're calling this the bridal paradigm as we look at kingdom relationships. The next few weeks, we're going to go into a series called Kingdom Relationships. And you can see that there. So today... We're going to look at the heart of Jesus towards his bride, which throughout scripture is his church. And we see that throughout the scripture. Um, God uses the analogy of a bride and a groom to basically describe our relationship to Jesus. So this verse right here, just give you an example. It really does bridge the last couple of teachings that we've been doing. In Matthew 22, 1 through 13, it says the kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So with that in mind, again, there's this bridal paradigm throughout scripture. It's contained in so many passages of scriptures within the New Testament and numerous examples used by Jesus, Paul, even Peter used some of this bridal language, so to say. And uh, so then the reason we're wanting to do this is because there's hidden meanings in this scripture, but to get the hidden meanings, you have to understand the Hebrew culture in the first century in Galilee. Some of the traditions that they would do when they had a wedding or when they were had an engagement or the things that they did to be able to, to unlock the keys. They're, they're like keys that unlock hidden meanings. And so uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. I've got a couple of charts. I'm going to show you two charts, and then at the very end, we'll put it together so that you'll see exactly where we're going to, with this. Okay, so let's just go ahead and begin with the first chart. Here we go. We're going to look at Hebrew customs and then the New Testament fulfillment, and the whole purpose is just to bring the Scripture alive and show you how much Jesus loves us. So as you can see here, it began with uh, what's called the Sadduken. The Sadduken was the arrangement, if you will. So marriages and weddings and all that back then were arranged by the fathers. The father of the groom would actually choose the bride for his son. And then the two fathers would get together and they would talk about it. And uh, this so corresponds beautifully with Ephesians 1. I hope you're taking notes because there's going to be a lot of scriptures we'll look at, but some you'll need to write down. This really does correspond really well with Ephesians 1 and verse 4. It says this, for he chose us, who? The Father chose us in him before the creation of the world. In other words, God chose us to be the bride of Christ, okay? So, and it was customary for these, these two fathers to get together and see if they could work some things out. And most of the time, the bride has never even seen the groom. She's going to have a choice of whether or not she wants to marry him or not, but she's never even seen him. How beautifully this is portrayed in 1 Peter 1.8. It says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe and are filled with this 
this glory, it says. So uh, first there was a choice, the seduken, and then the very next step would be called what we, you see it right there, the bridal price, or in Hebrew, the mahor. What was the mahor? The mahor was something of great value to the bride, okay? It was or to the groom. It, it meant the world to the groom. It meant everything to him. And so it was a gift given by the family of the groom to the bride. So what was the gift? What was the gift that God first offered us? In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his life. He gave his life. That was our mahor, if you will. That was our whore. Now what happened next would be called the contract. The contract. It was called the ketaba. And what was the contract? Well, the contract or the ketaba was the provisions of the marriage, the conditions, the promises of the marriage. This was a very formal written kind of uh, document. It was on a scroll usually. Uh, they would hire a scribe to write it. It was something that was quite beautifully written and decorative. They would put colors on it. It was, it was an amazing thing. But what did this document do? This document assured the bride that she would be taken care of all her life, okay? And the kataba was kept by the bride all the way up to the, the day that she would get married and that she would, you know, be face-to-face -face with her groom. So what is our kataba? What is our kataba? Our kataba is the scripture, the word of God. It says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes and amen in Christ. The Bible is our ketaba. It is what assures us that we as the bride of Christ will be taken care of. And again, you might be thinking, we're the bride of Christ. Yes, the church, we who believe in Jesus are known as the bride of Christ. So what happens next? We're going right through the steps. We have the seduken, we've got the mahor, the ketaba, but then we have the engagement cup. And this is a beautiful thing that would happen during this huge dinner with the families together. They would give them a whore. They would give the kataba, the bride's family, the bride's, groom, the bride's dad would read over it with his daughter. But then we have the engagement cup. And what would happen is it would be a silver cup. Silver is symbolic of redemption, which is really cool. And what would happen? It'd be placed in the middle of the table and they would pour uh, wine to fill the cup up. And then what the groom would do is take the cup and drink half of the cup and put it back on the table. What is he doing? He is asking right there, this, the bride to be, will you marry me? If her answer is yes, she takes the cup and drinks the rest of the wine. How beautifully this is portrayed in Matthew, is shown in Matthew 26 and 27. Let me read it to you. Jesus here, uh, the, night, the night he was betrayed uh, at the, the upper room, it says that he took the cup, he gave thanks, he offered it to them saying, drink it, each one of you. This is the blood of the covenant. So whenever we take communion, what we are saying is Jesus has taken half the cup. We are now taking the rest of the cup and drinking it and saying, yes, we will be betrothed to you as our great bridegroom, amen? So much more into this. So what would happen next? Well, if she took the cup, and by the way, she did have a choice. 
Okay, people say, well, did she have it? Yes, if she didn't want to marry that guy, she don't drink the rest of that cup. I'm like, no, see you later. Boy, that was a, you know, it's rough. And just like us, we have a choice. Jesus has given us this mahor. He goes, I've given you my life. Here's my word. I will take care of you forever. I drank of the cup and I offer it to you. Will you partake? And can, will you join me? Will you? Be my, in a sense, the bridegroom saying, will you be my bride to the church? How beautiful it is. So if she did drink the cup, what happens next? The next step, um, you can see we're getting ready to go into what is called the first ceremony. Now, this is something that's quite a bit different from our tradition. There were two ceremonies in the Hebrew culture, and this is really important that you get this. So this is the first ceremony. And in the morning of the first ceremony, something awesome would happen. They would enter into something called the mikvah. The mikvah, it was like where, uh, the morning of the, of the ceremony, they would both get, get into this mikvah. It was a pool, and they would both be immersed into this pool, and it's symbolic of water baptism. What it symbolized before they did the first ceremony was that we are beginning a complete and total new life together. That's what it symbolized. Together, we're going to have a new life. Okay, so where is, this, where is this in the scripture? Again, wedding language all throughout the scripture. Here, Romans 6 and verse 4, it says this, we were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. It's amazing how this parallels our walk with God, how he again is offering himself. So what would happen in that first ceremony? You remember the first ceremony? After they were, in a sense, ceremonially cleansed and brought up out of the water with symbolic New Testament fulfillment, baptism, they would have the first ceremony. And what an event this was. They would set up a chupa. A chupa is kind of like a, it's a, it's a tent-like covering. And the groom and his fam, his dad, would be underneath the chupa. And then the bride would come in. There she is in all her glory. The bride would come in, would walk in and circle him seven times. Seven is the number of perfection. It's symbolic of making a wall around, uh, around the new home and the world. And then she would step into that wall Again, glorious things. What would they do next? Well, I mean, they drank a lot of wine, so they would have a cup of wine together. They would do that. They would speak the vows that were in the ketubah. Remember the ketubah, the written contract? They'd read them out loud to one another. They would put rings on their fingers. Uh, the the uh, groom would have a prayer shawl, a prayer shawl that covered him. He would wrap her in it. And that's where you get the scripture, you know, being wrapped and just hide me under the shadow of your wings. Then they would pray blessings on, over one another. And then I want to let you know something. This is very important you hear this. From that point on, they are married. They are married. They are legally married. Before God, they are married. They are married. But then something very different in that culture would happen from our culture. We'll go ahead and see another chart here. They would enter into what's called the betrothal. This is a time of being set apart from one another. In other words, this would last one year. Okay, so let me, let me just get this. You know, 
In other words, they ain't constantly made to the marriage. You understand what I'm saying? They've not had physical sexual relations. They are separated for an entire year usually, and, but they are married. They are completely married. In other words, they, they are hooked together. Y'all got that point, I hope. Okay, how is that fulfilled in our day? That's the current age, the church age, the dispensation that we're in. We are, as the church, married to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. But there is this separation time. Now, what was the separation time for? It was a time to sanctify yourself. It was a time to prepare yourself. Um, and again, actually, you can see right there, it's called the dikishim. Kedishim means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be, to be sanctified together. Okay, and again, this would last one year. All right, now, that sounds pretty hardcore, doesn't it? I mean, y'all, I mean, that's like, wow, I'm going to marry her and then I'm not going to see her for a year. In other words, I'm going to leave in the morning. But there's one thing that happened before the groom left for an entire year. He would give her what's called the bridal gift, different than the, the bridal price. The bridal gift was called the matan. And what was the matan? And what was, and what was this gift? This gift had to be something of great value to the groom and to the father of the groom. And, and here it is right here, our matan. I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is what Jesus spoke to the disciples right before he went to the cross was died and then was risen from the dead. And now this has so much bridal language because you see that I will not leave you as orphans? That's a Jewish idiom. And this is what the groom would say to the bride right before he left. I will not leave you. I will come back for you. But I'm giving you a matan. And usually back in the Hebrew culture, it was land. It was, you know, it was livestock. It was something of great, great value. But our matan... Praise the Lord is the Holy Spirit of God. It's really interesting. The word matan means gift. And you can find this in, in Acts 1, 4, and 5. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard about. For John baptized you in water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God. See, he hasn't left us as orphans. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And you know what that Holy Spirit is? That Holy Spirit is a guarantee from the groom that I will come back for you. It was of such great value, there's no way he would give away such land or something so valuable to him that he would not come back for her, okay? So during this time, we got to ask the question in the Kedishim or the, or the, as I was just, you know, the Kedishim or the betrothal, we'll go back to this chart or actually let's do this. Let's go back to this chart and look at it one more time. So we have the betrothal, the Kedishim, which is symbolic of the church age. What were they to do? What, we got to ask the question, you know, like what was the most important thing for them to do? Well, the bride had duties. The bride was to, to prepare herself for this awesome wedding, okay? And you can see what's going on there. But, but then you see something under there, the bridal chamber, which would have been the father's house. What was the groom supposed to do? Well, the groom was to go back to his father's house and he was to build 
a room or a bridal chamber in which the new couple would live. And it was attached to the father's house. Now, he would work on this for a solid year. And the father would come and inspect the house and go, is it good enough? Is it good enough? And only when it was good enough would that father send the groom to go get the bride. So let's look at these scriptures right here. That Jesus spoke this in John 14 too. This is so much wedding language. And I want to let you know the first century disciples would have immediately connected. He's talking about the condition. He's talking about the set apart time. And Jesus says this, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. So what is Jesus doing right now? In this time of condition, he's married to this church. This is the bride of Christ. We are all the bride of Christ in this room. If you've accepted Jesus in your heart, he's up there right now preparing a room for you, a personal room for you and I that we will dwell with him forever. Can you imagine that? I pray to God I got some oceanfront property with good break, you know, surf, good surf, you know. All I know is Kim's house, my wife, is a whole lot bigger than my house. I'll guarantee that, you know. Again, this is wedding language. This is the disciples, the early first century disciples would immediately connect it. Whoa. He's going to prepare a place in his father's house for us. He's going to prepare a place. So, uh, again, such a beautiful time, beautiful time. Now, let's talk about this, this time of waiting, this time that we're currently in. During this time, the bride is waiting for her groom to return. She's separated from him, but she's preparing herself. Now, she didn't know the exact day and the exact time, but generally she had an approximate time that it, that it would happen. Okay, so in this time, she must stay alert because she does not know when the groom will come. Jesus alluded to this constantly in the gospel. Stay alert for you do not know when I come back. Watch out, keep watch because you don't know when the second coming of the Lord Jesus is. Okay, what does she have? She has the ketubah, symbolic of the word. She has the matan, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But she's occupied with these twisting thoughts in herself. Will he ever come? She even sometimes doubt, will the bridegroom ever come? And don't we feel that right now? Don't we feel like Jesus just please come back and get us? It says he's coming back for us. Yeah. So when will she come? There's one key. What would happen? The father of the groom would go inspect the groom's building of his bridal chamber, the house that he and his bride will live in. He would inspect it every day. And only when he says, go get your bride, can he actually go get his bride. Can you imagine being the groom in that day? Your dad comes in, inspects the house. I mean, can you imagine the groom like, come on, dad, come on. I'm ready to go get her, dad. Come on, 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 dad, come on. <laughs> Not yet. He walks out like, oh gosh. So he builds the house some more. He builds the house some more, okay. 
Someone would go ask the bride, ask the bride, when's the big day? This is a Jewish idiom, a Hebrew idiom. She would go, only the father knows. Only the father knows. And they would say that to her. She'd walk down the village street and they'd go, you know, only the father knows. And she goes, I know. It was, it was a Hebrew idiom. It's actually, it's actually sometimes on wedding bands. You, it'll say, only the father knows. You know, even today, they'll put that on some of the Hebrew wedding bands. How beautifully this is, is seen in the scripture. When, in John 14, 3, I go there to pre- prepare a place for you to be where I am. He says this in, in Mark 13, 32. No one knows about the day or hour, even the angels of heaven or the Son, but only the Father knows. Again, wedding language is just everywhere. So she had to be ready because at any moment, any moment, go get your bride, go get your bride. All right, so let's go to our second chart now. Again, we'll go back to this, the Hebrew custom. We've gone through the betrothal, the condition, the bridal gift, the chamber is, is being made, but then we finally get to the final ceremony. And I think this is what we're all longing to be. Amen, at least I know I am. It is called the Nisuin. Nisuin. It's the final step. And the Nisuin comes from a word called Nasan. It means to carry off. This is a graphic description of what is getting ready to happen as the bridegroom comes for his bride and carries her off. In ancient Jewish times, in a Jewish wedding, the, the groom would would just be waiting, waiting, waiting. The tradition is called a thief in the night. It usually happened at midnight when the, when the father of the groom would come inspect the house and go, it's good. Go get your bride. This is another Jewish idiom. They called it, that's the thief in the night. They kept saying, to the, hey, when's the thief in the night coming? I don't know. Dad's checking out the place. We'll find out. I don't know. When's the thief in the night coming? I don't know. How beautifully this is shown in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. The Lord will come like a thief in the night. <laughs> this brings further insight into to what that scripture means. And as soon as the father said, okay, it's good, go get your bride. It was usually at midnight. The best man who was called the friend of the bridegroom. John references this. You remember John the baptizer? He, he referenced this. I'm, he's the friend of the bridegroom. The, the best man would prepare the bridal party to show up at the right time. So what would the best man do? He'd have to be listening. Listening. And as soon as the father gave his good, hey, go get your bride. The best man would go to the house of the groom and he would let out a large shout. Here comes the bridegroom. He cometh. And then he would take a trumpet and he would blow the trumpet. How beautifully this is seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Get this down. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Here comes the bridegroom. I'm telling you, we're going to see that day. I'm excited about it. Can't you tell? Oh, man. What would happen next? Well, there were groomsmen and there were bridesmaids. And so the groomsmen would light torches. And they would show up at the groom's house. This is back in the Hebrew culture, first century. And then the groom's all geared up. Man, he's geared up. He's going to go get his bride. And they would go around the village shouting, 
yelling, screaming, here comes the bridegroom. He cometh. It just, the town would wake up like, whoa, there's getting ready to be a wedding ceremony. What would the bridesmaids do? They were, usually, they were bridesmaids, just like we have. What were they to do? They were to grab lamps, lamps, and they would have to light their lamps because their job was to illuminate a pathway in the dark all the way so that the bride would run down this pathway to the, the bridegroom when he showed up at her door. This is so beautifully, beautifully illustrated in Matthew 25 with the parable of the ten virgins. Um, there's that scripture. Here it is. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Oh, yes. See, they had a job to do. Now, Jesus goes on and talks about that. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And there's ten virgins, and, the, and, and five of them were wise. They kept oil in their lamps. What does that oil speak of? The Holy Spirit. Five were wise. Five were foolish. They fell asleep. They just thought he's not coming. They let the oil go out. They weren't ready. This is why Jesus tells us as his church, be ready because I cometh at a time you don't know. I come when you don't know. This next scripture really does illustrate it really well. The bridegroom was a long time coming and they all became drowsy. These are the 10 virgins and they fell asleep. But at midnight, there's the cry, it rang out. Here's the bridegroom, come and meet him. This was the custom. So what would happen next? This is my favorite part. Y'all can tell I really enjoy this. I tell you, I enjoy this teaching. This is my favorite part. So what would happen next is this big bridal party would show up at the bride's house. The bridesmaids would line up at the door with the groomsmen kind of making this tunnel for her to run through. The groom would face her door and shout. What would happen next is just absolutely beautiful. The bride would fling open the door and run to him jump in his arms and he would take her and embrace her. This is what is seen in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for his husband, for her husband. How many are looking forward to that day? When our Jesus comes, with a great shout, with all the angels, with all the armies of heaven following him. And he lets out a long, a long just shout. And we run and embrace the Lord. Beautiful. Now what would happen next was the final ceremony. This was the pinnacle, a joyous celebration, a marriage supper. The grooms would, want, would once again set up the chupa, the tent, the ceremony was finalized. They would read the ketubah, the promises to one another. And then they would have a seven-day party. Let me tell you, they knew how to do weddings, didn't they? A seven-day party with food 
with dancing, with worship, with celebration. It goes beautifully to this scripture and it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this continues with Revelation 21, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. This is what we're waiting for. They will be his people and God himself will be with them, their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sin. All that has passed away. Let's look at a chart as we put it together for you here as we end. The Hebrew custom, we see where we are in this present disposition of the first ceremony and the second. The dispensation that we're fine, the time that we're in. We know we've been given the mahor. Jesus has given his life for us. There's a contract. It's called the Bible. It's, it's our ketubah. We keep it with us. The engagement cup. When you've asked Jesus into your life, you've taken that cup and you've said, yes, I, I, I want to be yours. The first ceremony happens. Then we are water baptized. But then there's a betrothal, a time of being set apart from one another. But in this, he's given us the gift, the matan, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee that I will come back. I will not leave you like an orphan. The bridal chamber in John 14, he says, I'm preparing a place for you so that I can come back and take you to be where I am. But there's coming a final ceremony when we will be brought to the Lord face to face. What a day. Let's stand, if you will. Everybody, let's stand. Father, we love you. And though we find ourselves in this time of waiting, believing, <laughs> we thank you for your promises of, your, of our catabon, of the word of God, and of the mahor, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, in this broken world, we long for you. We just do. And your bride, the church, your bride, we say to you, we, we love you, Lord. If there's anyone here today and you have never actually opened up your heart to say, I want Jesus, I'll give you a chance to do that. It's just a perfect day to do it. It's just a perfect, perfect day to say, Lord, here's my, here's my heart, I want you. And if that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer, just, just you, you and God. Just pray this prayer. Just say, dear God, I thank you for Jesus. And I confess my sin to you. And I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Come into my life right now, Lord Jesus. I receive you now as my Lord. And thank you so much for saving me. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give the Lord a big, huge praise? Amen. Let's do it. Amen. He loves you so much. He cares for you so much. And um, 
Wow, you can just feel the presence of God here. Just know today as we're celebrating Valentine's Day just how much He loves you. How much He gave for you. How much He cares for you. All right, praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Make it a great week, everybody. Make it a great week. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To find out more about our ministry, visit hhcboon.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Harvest House Church Boone.